a British TV podcast with Chrissy and Ryan. News, reviews, what's on TV this week, DVD releases, and special features all about British TV. Hello and welcome to the British TV podcast. It's show 67. Yes, it is. I'm staring out your big open window here waiting for snowflakes to fall and then I'll just race home. Snow that will never happen. Uh, well, we'll see. It will happen, but not very briefly, it seems. Ought to melt again tomorrow, which is good because I'm going downtown Seattle for a proper meal out tomorrow. Who are you? It's Chrissy. In? Seattle. Right. And I'm Ryan in Seattle. They know that by now. <laughs> Every show is somebody's first show. All right. I'm Chrissy here in cold Seattle. Yes. Well, this week's show, we have reviews, news, what's on British TV this week, shows running in the United States, DVD releases, and a feature on Shameless. All righty. I watched lots of telly this week. What All did British. you watch? I watched the Darren Brown documentary. I watched the Christmas Sue and Giles do the good life, plus the documentary on the good life that went with it. I watched the first episode of Hustle, season seven. Good ratings for that. Yeah, it was very good. Oh, I watched the David Williams Awfully Good TV. Well, what did you think of that? It was fun. I had seen that clip, but I hadn't really realized what that five-year-old was singing about making love at night. Mini Pops. Mini Pops, right. Yeah, they only made six episodes, but I guess it was really big in Canada, too. They toured all over. I looked them up. Wow. Yeah. Oh, I... Oh, so you, did you watch the whole thing? I did. Yeah, so you saw the Donnie and Marie Star Wars, which was even better. I than probably that. watched it when it was on. Oh, golly. I had Donnie and Marie dolls as a oh. kid, but I don't remember much about the show at all. And I let him get away with his montage of the five worst Doctor Who moments, mm-hmm. only because I know he's a fan. And, you know, oh. most fans aren't going to stand up and defend the Murka. It was a shitty looking monster. <laughs> and I, Yeah, I liked it. The monster with the penis. That was funny. <laughs> yeah, that's another one. That you're just like, what were they thinking? It was tough being a Doctor Who fan back in those days. And of course, they chose the breastfeeding family just so that David could say, Biddy! <laughs> in recognition. But I mean, that's a lot for me. I always, I always have a pile of stuff to watch, so. Don't we all? It was all good. And I sort of downloaded just to see what it's like, the first episode of Shameless, to see... If, or how closely are they are they using the same scripts or is it just the premise? I'm going to talk about that. Okay, alrighty then. This week marks the 40th anniversary of two important television events. The first is Masterpiece Theater, which debuted on January 10th, 1971. The inimitable Alistair Cook, who'd been living in America for years and broadcasting back to the BBC, was brought on as host, which began with the first Churchills, which even he didn't think very highly of. <laughs> Cook's association with the program was so great that it's taken a number of hosts to fill his shoes. I think currently they have a rotating list, including Alan Cumming, Gillian Anderson, David Tennant, and Laura Linney. So it takes four people, four mm-hmm. people to yep. fill that one great Brit. The second 40th anniversary this week was the debut of All in the Family. And what's this got to do with a British TV podcast? Well, the Norman Lear sitcom which made a household name of Carol O'Connor as bigoted Archie Bunker, was based on the long-running BBC comedy Till Death Us Do Part by Johnny Spake. We talked about this on our show about American remakes way back in show four of the podcast. And this is particularly relevant this week with our topic of Shameless, which is also running as a U.S. remake that started this week on Showtime. See, it's all connected. This week on Twitter... 
What did I talk about this week? Well, Sarah Smart is going to guest star in Doctor Who. I talked about her a couple of weeks ago when she turned up as Don French's mum in Little Crackers. Sarah played one of the daughters in At Home with the Braithwaites, and she will be seen later this year in the two-part Doctor Who story written by Matthew Graham. I enjoyed both the Darren Brown specials on Channel 4 last week. Uh, his Enigma show, stage show had several how-do-you-do-that moments. It's great to see him bamboozle an entire theater of people all at once. And the documentary about him during Darren Brown Night on Saturday was a nice biographical portrait of his career so far. Well, I watched the documentary. I also watched a Penn & Teller show this week. Did you see that? Penn & Teller did a one-off special hosted by Wasi. Called... And apparently some magician actually bamboozled them. Two. Two. Two passed the test, and we'll get to go to Vegas and open for them at some point. And one of them was more of a men's working club magician slash comedian, and they were very frustrated by that. They wanted one of your old school sleight of hand magicians to do it, not just a bloke with ele- with envelopes, you know, doing mm-hmm. a lot of banter with the audience. But he was one of them. They couldn't figure out how he had done what he did, so he won. And then a young young fella who did some really amazing things where he memorized the order of a deck of cards that Penn had brought with him and then found all the aces by not appearing to look at the cards at all, just shuffling, and that was kind of good. Yeah, I think there's a couple of magician shows on right now, and they're doing fairly well. Yeah, there's um, the thing about what I read about the Penn & Teller show was that they actually filmed nine magicians, but the show only showed six Penn actually kind of gave away a bit of their secrets. He tried not to do it too much, but after the first act, he said, oh, and the puppetry was amazing. Now, obviously, you think about it. This guy did not really pull the heads off his chicken and his duck and then restore them. But still saying flat out, oh, the puppetry was amazing. That kind of kills your trick, you know. And that, and this is, so I'm wondering if those, if the three, because they didn't fool them, said, please don't show our trick because that's our bread and butter, or if it just wasn't entertaining enough to make the cut of the hour time slot but i read that um jonathan's hoping to come and do some of these with penn and teller in the states some more of these wasi invades america yeah i i think he's long overdue i remember when politically incorrect went over in 1999 and did a week of shows and graham norton ended up getting his contract with somebody central out of it but i thought Jonathan was the star of the show he was in, and I was surprised hmm. no one wrapped him up or whapped him up. Well, he was getting a fine paycheck from the BBC, That's as true. we know, and he's got his production company now. Did you see the Big Fat Quiz? Yes, saw that. They'll never pass 2006. That was just the best. Can't be thinking about past glories. You just mm-hmm. take it for what it is. It was very funny, and I like Richard Iowati on that. He was good. <laughs> yes. Did a very good deadpan. We were talking about the magic shows, Darren. So um, did we see Darren's boyfriend? No, I don't think so. Ah, kept him in the shadows, eh? Yep. And he didn't talk about some of the darker things that he's had to go through Hmm. with very, um, he says he's seen mental illness, the likes of which he never suspected existed with some people who really think he is psychic and really is magic. And he's had people, he had a woman come from Australia and track down his parents that show up at their house. So they left all that behind and made it kind of remember he didn't make the documentary it was made that's true about him but that was left out Mm, you can only put so much in a a bit yeah you know hour-long slot it was interesting seeing all his collaborators and just how he got started and ended up on tv and talking about the various things like the russian roulette one and how nervous his mom was Mm -hmm. 
surprised you would be, yeah. Well, if it's a real trick, then you, there's no reason to be nervous, but... Yeah, and we saw his brother. He, his, he has a much younger brother who I'd heard because he did one of his DVDs. The first two series of Tricks of the Mind have been out, are out on DVD, and then since then his regular series have not come out on DVD, but he had a different co-person with him doing the commentaries on all these episodes, and he had his little brother on one of them, and he was just making fun of his brother all the way through, picking on him just like a big brother would. That's not very fair, though, when one's a professional entertainer and the other's a civilian. Yep. It was, oh, the other thing that was interesting you mentioned Darren's boyfriend was he, he, he read somewhere that he came out pretty late. It took him a long time to figure out really where his heart was. And there was, in this, even in the second trick of the mind, there was one episode where he had a rather pretty girl that he was taking off into the woods to hypnotize. And his brother was saying, well, that's just you taking an attractive woman off as usual or something like that. So it might have been more recent than we think. Hmm. I was disappointed that the Seattle Times review of Downton Abbey repeated the lie of the Daily Mail that two hours had been cut out for the PBS broadcast. Mm-hmm. It's not true. Nothing's been cut. Said, Don't they teach that in journalism schools across the globe? Don't quote the Daily Mail. It's like quoting the National Enquirer, for heaven's sakes. Yes. Marco wouldn't wear the hat made of the Daily Mail in that very famous Christmas good life. <laughs> Remember when they all pulled the crackers and were meant to put on the hats, and she goes, this is the Daily Mail. So someone had to give her the, I guess, the standard or something, <laughs> swap her hat. Reviews. The Sinking of the Laconia. I missed seeing this in the listings last week. Sorry about that. I thought it was going to be a documentary, but instead it was a two-part miniseries based on the true story about a merchant marine ship, the Laconia, that was sunk by a German U-boat in 1942, whose captain then went back and picked up the survivors. Acclaimed TV writer Alan Bleasdale wrote the script that follows the pattern of most disaster movies by introducing all the main characters in the run-up to the sinking. The Laconia sailed from the south of Egypt with a number of British citizens as well as 2,000 Italian POWs stuck in the hold. We are introduced to the junior third officer Mortimer, played by Andrew Buchan, and the ship's captain, played by Brian Cox. Passengers include a couple traveling with their two children, an older woman, played by Lindsay Duncan and her daughter, and Hilda and her baby. But Hilda is hiding a secret. We see her burning her German passport before boarding the ship at the last minute using her British passport. She's played by Franca Potent from Run Lola Run. We also meet Captain Hartenstein and his U-boat crew, hoping to win a competition with other boats to sink the most allied tonnage. After sailing around the South Horn of Africa and up the western coast, the Laconia's low-grade fuel created black smoke that was easily spotted by Hartenstein's patrolling U-boat. He fires two torpedoes into the Laconia, which quickly sinks, killing most of the Italian POWs who weren't allowed to come above deck. Standard operating procedure for the U-boat would have been to immediately leave the area, but Hartenstein sticks around. He realizes there are women and children in the water and makes the fateful decision to rescue as many survivors as he can find. The even-handedness of this story is amazing. The British aren't known for being terribly sympathetic about portraying Germans during World War II. But there's barely a swastika in sight. This is the German Navy simply doing its duty. Hartenstein was a 20-year veteran of the service. It's his adherence to the code of the sea that spurs him to conduct the rescue, even as he knows High Command is not going to be pleased he's giving aid and comfort to the Allied enemy. 
The rescued British survivors, for their part, come across as fairly forgiving of the Germans, appreciating that the captain is very much sticking out his neck for them. Hartenstein knows he needs to get rid of over 200 extra passengers, so he sends out an open message in English requesting assistance and promising not to attack any ships that come to rescue them. But the British authorities don't want to trust such a message. What if it's a trap? So instead, they tell a secret American base to go looking in that area for the wreckage of their ship without mentioning, oh, by the way, the survivors might be on a German U-boat. Gung-ho American flyboys on their first mission find the submarine, and despite a prominent red cross now on the deck and hundreds of civilians standing around on top, decide to shoot first and ask questions later. Hartenstein realizes his first duty is to his ship and his crew, so he puts the survivors back in their lifeboats with as much water as he can spare. A ship from Vichy, France, is on its way to pick them up, but the U-boat needs to leave before the Americans come back. This international co-production was first-rate, with great production values. Did they really use an old U-boat, or is it all special effects? I couldn't tell. I love the cast, and the writing was miles from a cliché disaster movie. The characters were all interesting and well-played by familiar TV veterans. The following night after the sinking of the Laconia, BBC Two ran a half-hour special that interviewed actual survivors of the incident who described it in their own words. Wow, it sounds great. It, is, it was really good. Mm. I mean, as soon as I saw Alan Bleasdale's name on this, I'm like, oh, I didn't realize he was still writing TV stuff. I suspect the reason that the Germans aren't looked down upon is that there you know, was a German co-production as well. A lot of German actors are in it. With speaking flawless English where they needed to, and the rest of it was uh, with subtitles. Mm. Andrew Buchan, somebody who I'm starting to spot in more things. He was a Nowhere Boy and several other things, and he's quite a good-looking guy. Hmm. And, of course, our favorite, Lindsay Duncan. Yes. News. The Jerry Anderson fan site, Fanderson, is reporting that he confirmed to them that he has finalized a deal to make a new series of Thunderbirds. There's no press release or confirmation from another source, so we'll take it for what it is. Thunderbirds was the classic 1965 puppet series that we talked about in show 63 during our feature on Jerry Anderson. Now, probably much like his Captain Scarlet revival, which was done CGI, no strings attached. Maybe the Thunderbirds would be like that, too. Of course, there was the Jonathan Frakes directed live action American movie a couple of years ago, which he had nothing to do with. Hmm. So presumably he still holds the TV rights. So we'll see. Continuing an ongoing ratings trend in television generally, the five main terrestrial broadcasters in the UK lost audience share in 2010 from the year before. BBC One was the least affected, down only 1%, with a peak time share of 22.2% to 23% of the audience, depending on how peak time is defined. BBC does it one way, and ITV does it another. BBC Two suffered the largest loss of audience share, down nearly 8% from 2009 levels, to a 6.9% of the overall audience share, less than Channel 4 now. ITV1 counted its share at either 23.4% or 22.3%, depending on who was saying it, which is also down from the previous year. Historically, BBC1 has lost audience share every year since 1996, while ITV has been on a downward trend since 1990. And the usual suspects to explain these trends include competition from digital channels, DVDs, video games, the internet, and playing with kittens. Hmm, that last one might be a bit spurious. <laughs> oh, I keep the, my TV off to play with my cat sometimes. A bit past kittenhood, though. You're contributing to the downward spiral mm. of television here. Yeah, I should just turn on BBC One. All right. Well, 
I mean, in the United States, the same thing's going down, too. I mean, you know, 1971, when all the family was on, there were three networks, and that was mm-hmm. it. I remember those days. I remember. Yep, you just picked a channel and went with it, usually. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So it's on TV for the week of January 12th to the 18th. Well, Ryan, Wednesday, Midsummer Murders is on ITV1 with DCI Tom Barnaby investigating Not in My Backyard. Carpool on Dave has guests David Bedeal and Tim Minchin. Hugh's Fish Fight with Hugh Friendly Whittingstall continues on Channel 4 and it concludes on Thursday. It's followed on Channel 4 by Shameless, which continues each night this week. And we'll have a feature about the long-running series in a few minutes. Thursday, ITV begins a three-part thriller called Kidnap and Ransom, with Trevor Eve as an international hostage negotiator haunted by the death of a client, and Helen Baxendale co-stars. Come Fly With Me continues on BBC One. Not Going Out continues on BBC One. The first episode had many funny lines, but the plot resolution was something out of ideal, says Ryan. Yes, I was a bit shocked with that they did with one character. Hmm. I mean, a guest star character, but I'm like, wow, this is just not a goofy sitcom. Right. <laughs> Anything goes. Drug but dealing then? or Yeah, there was drug dealing. Wow. And the drug dealer did not come to a good end, okay. unless you could have survived being hit point-blank range by seven shots from a nail gun. Probably not. But there was no blood, of course. Yeah. But I liked it. I mean, it was funny. Uh, Shameless is on Channel 4 Thursday. Friday. QI has guests Rob Brydon, Sandy Toxvig, and David Mitchell looking at history on BBC One. Did you know Sandy Toxvig was the alternate idea for host of Have I Got News For You all those years ago? No, really? Yeah, it it came down between her and Angus. That might have been interesting. A little different that's because at that time she would have been big from whose line is it anyway but angus was sort of you know kind of a professional presenter by that point Mm -hmm. so although he had the past with his heebie-jeebies and lots with alexi sale and he'd been around too yeah hmm i did not know that yep qi is followed by hustle on bbc one a new improvisational comedy series called Fast and Loose begins on BBC Two, pre- presented by Mock the Weeks. And all the way back to, in the 90s, the Mary Whitehouse experiences, Hugh Dennis. Oh, golly, was he in that? Yeah. Well, along with uh, Newman and Baddiel. Yeah, it was Punt and Dennis, and then Newman and Baddiel were the two, and they all split up. Yeah. If you go way, way back to the radio series, actually, Nick Hancock was part of the group, but they dumped him for the, before the TV show. Wow. The yeah. Mary Whitehouse experience. I haven't thought about that for quite a few years. I liked that show a lot. I really, that was one of the early British sketch comedies I saw when I used to go to my friend Mark's house and we'd watch it on his little bitty pal set, <laughs> you know, because this was 1992, so ages ago and and uh, they just didn't get along. So they split up into the two double acts. Hmm. And Shameless is still on Channel 4. The Graham Norton Show on BBC One has guests Matt LeBlanc, Mary Portis, and Donald Sutherland. On Saturday, Primeval continues on ITV One. BBC Two has a tribute to the late Pete Pufflethwaite Saturday night. Sunday, Lark Rise to Candleford continues on BBC One. Wild at Heart continues on ITV One. Zen concludes its run on BBC One. 
Channel 4 has Gordon Ramsay, Sharkbait. Alas, critics of the outspoken chef won't get to see him fed to live sharks, but it's a look at how sharks are endangered by overfishing and changes to the ocean's ecology. And Channel 4 is having kind of a fishy theme this week with the Hugh Friendly Wooding Stall series and all this. In the run-up to the British Comedy Awards, Comics Choice begins on Channel 4. Alan Davies talks to Bill Bailey about who he thinks deserves an award. Oh, these used to be early December. They've moved it back a bit. Well, it's been, it's back later. It's on Channel 4. Wasi's back. They're opening more to the voting to the public. The Will they still be drunk? With oh, Carolyn yeah. Carolyn Ahern heckling away? All right. Well, if she's nominated. <laughs> oh. That Sunday night show continues on ITV1. Did anybody see it? Did anybody care? Mm. Monday, Tony Robinson starts a new three-part documentary series, Birth of Britain, that literally starts at the beginning with the formation of the British Isles and how it's been impacted by volcanic eruptions and lava flows. Silent Witness begins another two-part mystery on BBC One. Episodes continues on BBC Two. So I watched the first episode, and Stephen Mangan and Tamsin Grieg are always interesting to watch. But the show's going to fall flat if its central joke is its only joke, that Americans are idiots and the British are too polite to stand up for themselves. So here's hoping that a dash of Matt LeBlanc in episode two sweetens the pot. In fact, the only way he even turned up in the first episode was the opening scene is a setup for then a flashback of seven weeks earlier that shows him driving around. Weren't impressed. It's a funny premise because it is fun to see them lampoon TV. Although, funny enough, Ben Miller made a cameo after they win their BAFTA saying how jealous he is. And, of course, he was in a show called Moving Wallpaper. It was also Mm -hmm. a behind-the-scenes show where he played an egomaniacal producer and his writing staff. And that show lasted for two years. So, we'll see. We'll see. Alan Carr, Chatty Man, is on Channel 4 with guests Jonathan Ross, Kevin Bridges, Jack Whitehall, and Adele. Comics Choice on Channel 4 has Lee Mack revealing his all-time fantasy nominations. Tuesday, Silent Witness concludes its two-part mystery on BBC One. Shameless settles in to its normal Tuesday night slot for the rest of its run on Channel 4. In the United States, on BBC America on Wednesday, I Do Anything has its finale. Friday, Law & Order UK. Saturday, Prime Evil continues, and it's followed by The Graham Norton Show. And Top Gear is on Monday. The third season of Merlin continues Friday on Sci-Fi. And the U.S. remake of Being Human is Monday on Sci-Fi. If you've seen the British one, there's really no reason to watch this. Unless you're goofy like me and like doing the compare and contrast thing. Are you going to do that? I'll do it. I don't do it for every single episode unless I really like... For instance, I liked the American Life on Mars. Some of them kind of took the plots from the British series and others did not, but I watched them all. Like Coupling, I watched the first episode, didn't watch the second, and then it was over. Oh, Coupling, notoriously horrible remake. Even though it was line by line the same, I mean, only the accents changed and it just didn't work at all. For people looking for true being human, it will be on the week after next Yay. on BBC Three. So it's coming. Tell your friends. Yay. On Showtime, episodes continues. Also on Sunday, Downton Abbey continues on most PBS stations. 
There was some re-editing, and on Twitter people told me that there were at least two new scenes added. I noticed that there are now captions to tell you the dates, because the timeline keeps going ahead. And a scene from the middle of episode two was moved up to be part of the 90-minute premiere on PBS, because of course they showed the first part and then the first 20 minutes of the second part, but then they took another scene and kind of crammed it in there as well. So nothing is cut out. Enjoy Downton Abbey. Speaking of which, DVD releases, our first one is Downton Abbey. Yes, before it finishes its run on PBS, you can own Downton Abbey for yourself. It's billed as the original UK edition, and it's also available on Blu-ray high def. Doctor Who, The Dominators, a 1969 adventure with Patrick Troughton. Not one of his best, it features the one and only appearance of the Quarks as monsters. Doctor Who Meglos, a 1980 adventure with Tom Baker. Not one of his best, it features the one and only appearance of a shape-shifting cactus. What is it about January that they are dumping notorious Doctor Who stories on the unsuspecting public? And before you write in, yes, I do know the Quark showed up in War Games, but it doesn't really count as a cameo. Okay. I did not know that. Skins, Volume 4, the acclaimed E4 series about teenagers, which is getting an American remake, of course, on MTV soon. I did not realize they were releasing those over here. That's kind of cool. And what's famous about this show, it's about high schoolers, or the equivalent in Britain, is every two years they get rid of the entire cast and they bring in new characters, which, of course, is anathema to American television. It'll be interesting to see how long MTV can keep the cast around. Or Glee, for that matter. (laughs) Uh, Framed, another Masterpiece Contemporary co-production, the recent TV movie about an art collection in a small Welsh village with Trevor Eve and Eve Miles. It's on DVD. My mother was talking about that. She said, and the girl from Torchwood, so I knew it had to be Eve. Yes. She wouldn't have recognized anyone else, I don't think. The Sign of Four, another Ian Richardson turn as Sherlock Holmes in this production from 1983 is released. On DVD. And now... A feature on Shameless, which is one of the most popular programs on Channel 4. And now there's an American remake set in Chicago. What is it all about, Ryan? And is the remake any good? Well, the short answer is yes, but I'll talk about that. That's Bill Macy. In a bit. Bill Macy. I've been following Shameless since it debuted seven years ago. Originally, the story of the Gallaghers, led by Wastrel Frank, played by David Threlfall. It has since expanded to encompass many characters of the fictitious Chatsworth estate in Manchester. In the opening narration, Frank introduces us to his many children. Fiona, the oldest, takes care of the family since their mum ran off. Philip, or Lip. Probably the smartest. Ian, whom we find out is gay in the first episode. And the younger ones, Carl, Debbie, and Liam. Their neighbors include Kevin, Veronica, and much of the action centers around the jockey, the local pub, and the usual location of the perpetually drunk Frank. Shameless was created by writer Paul Abbott, best known for State of Play, Touching Evil, and Clocking Off. He was also apparently the, one of the youngest story editors ever on Coronation Street. He based the show partially on his experiences growing up in a large family. 
Originally, his concept was a rather dark and downbeat one-off TV movie, but a few years later, he took another stab at it and to look at things that happened with a comic undertone. Indeed, what makes Shameless so infinitely watchable is it's very funny. While seemingly having all the staples of a typical soap opera, working-class heroes, characters coming and going, birth and death, and shocking revelations, it's the humor that separates Shameless from other TV shows. The cause of all the trouble in all the world since the dawn of time can be traced right back via one singular route to the moustache. Hitler, Stalin, Lenin, Mandelson. Down you go. Freddie Mercury. The camera frequently will do a power zoom into a character's face to emphasize a sudden realization. It's like a visual double take. Murray Gold's great score with the forlorn whistle in the background. It's two things that are missing on the American remake on Showtime. But that said, the American version hews very closely to the spirit and heart of the original. Though I maintain that remakes are unnecessary, if so, but if someone were to put a gun to your head and said, you have to remake Shameless, but it has to be set in the USA and have a new cast, then this is about as close as you're going to get. If you've seen the American remake, you've essentially seen the first episode of Shameless from 2004. I wish remakes didn't exist, and that Americans would be more willing to watch shows that don't feature Americans, but things are what they are. Seeing the U.S. version is better than not seeing Shameless at all. Aside from xenophobia, or not understanding the accents, the most common reason for not just importing a British show is there are so few episodes. American TV likes the familiarity of the same shows on every week with 22 new episodes a year. Well, guess what? This year, Shameless in the UK will be doing 22 episodes on top of the 82 episodes already shown over the previous seven seasons. Oh, well. At least the Sundance Channel has run it in the past so Americans could watch it. Rewatching the first UK episode over the weekend, I had completely forgotten that Steve Pemberton was in it playing Sheila's husband and Karen's dad. Dean Lennox Kelly, who played Kev, later was in The Invisibles with Anthony Head and played William Shakespeare in an episode of Doctor Who. And he was in Being Human, too. As a, he's the werewolf who turned uh, Russell oh, right. into a werewolf, Toby. Yes, he was. But he's not around anymore because they found him, his goodbye little speech scratched into a wall at the evil doctor's lair where he was trying to cure oh. all these type one ghosts and, yeah. But the biggest name to appear in Shameless was James McAvoy, who yep. played Steve, Fiona's boyfriend. McAvoy has since gone on to be a movie star in films like Atonement and Wanted. But for two seasons, he had a prominent role in Shameless. And of course, in real life, after he left the show, he took the girl with him. I was quite pleased to see that he is still married to Anne-Marie Duff, yep. and they just had a kid. Yep, they did. So good for him. They're known for not doing the star thing at all. They don't do any opening if, the, if unless they're in it. And they just uh, like their little real tidy life. And He's had the little career that could. Mm -hmm. uh, kind of going for British TV and then he did The Last King of Scotland and suddenly he was on the map. And, and the Narnia film too, the first one that yeah. was about the same time. So uh, it's cool. And it's just interesting to see him playing a normal bloke in, in Shameless. Well, I was, I've mentioned it before, but if you ever get Stephen Fry's film of Bright, what was it? Bright Young Things. Bright Young Things, and listen to the commentary track, um, 
James McAvoy was in that. And David Tennant. Yep. And he pulls them both out for greatness. Of course, the, the David Tennant was very funny because he said, if you're watching this about in a few years from now, it's going to seem ridiculous to you that I'm even telling you this actor's name and he got <laughs> it just right. But he also was talking about James and um, his ability with to do a posh English accent when whenever they'd turn the camera off and he'd just lapse back into a Scottish accent and how he'd studied that in school. It does amaze me how quickly his star rose. It's pretty cool. As Steve, he meets Fiona in a disco one night when he unsuccessfully tries to stop a purse snatcher. His middle-class background and flash cars intimidate Fiona at first, but Steve makes a concerted effort to win her over in the first episode. When it's revealed he really deals in stolen cars, it gives him enough street cred that Fiona agrees to date him. Frank is mostly a prop in the first episode. He doesn't make an appearance for the first 15 minutes, but when he does, it's being carried in unconscious by the police. He spends a lot of his time on the floor. A new washer, a present from Steve to impress Fiona, catches his attention, but he finally comes to life, at least for a while, one night when he confronts Steve and Fiona, trying to play the protective father. The American pilot added an extra scene of William H. Macy in the bar, doing his Frank thing, in this case, offering drinks on him and then reneging. I think this was mostly to remind audiences that he was indeed in the show. On the whole, the American repaint was a scene-by-scene remake hmm. of the original. I mean, they, they stuck to the plot. They have a bigger house. I thought they were going to be in high-rise, low-income housing, but in fact, they're in row houses. Okay. So they have their own front door. Because, of, of course, in Shameless, houses are just in England. And, you know, everybody I've visited in England, houses are not as big as they are generally in America, unless they're really new, new building and new construction. And and I thought you could really sense how tiny, you know, all the kids' bedrooms were that they were sharing and everything. And I wondered if they would go that route in this or if they'd feel like they had to open it up a little bit or... What they did open up is they definitely made Chicago part of it. I mean, they rarely ever go on location in Manchester right. in Shameless. They're always in their little estate, yeah. Right. And here uh, we saw the L trains. We saw Fiona works at uh, one of the stadiums. You know, they really want to give you a feel that you are in Chicago, which worked nice. I mean, it gave it a real sense of place. As the kids get older and the stories change, new characters were introduced in Shameless. The Irish mobsters, the Maguires, came on the scene when Lip begins dating and then gets pregnant Mandy, the mobster Patty Maguire's only daughter. Patty was played by Sean Gilder, who also appeared mm-hmm. in Paul Abbott's State of Play. Played very Merle Copper in that yep. one. He got to arrest uh, Mark Warren at the airport in that big, his big last scene where he tries to flee through Heathrow. <laughs> As Patty, he originally was brought on to be the tough guy villain along with his sons. But as the series evolved, the emphasis drifted off the Gallaghers and onto the Maguires, who moved in next door to keep an eye on their new granddaughter. Patty became a three-dimensional character who put family first, and along with his fearsome wife Mimi and sons, continued to expand on the relationships and stories that were explored. Now, he got written out after the last season. Apparently, he can't stand the woman who plays his wife. Okay. (laughs) And there's been throwaway lines that suggest that he might be dead but you know there's no body there's yeah. no death so they See, can bring him I've back watch the first three series and then i stalled and i'd like to watch it again it's just there's so much out there you know i'm always behind i know what you mean it's it's kind of a treat for me for research for these shows to go out and pull out a seven-year-old tape mm-hmm. and you know what was on that tape also was a, or one of the first episodes of little britain oh hey so it's 2004 i mean this is pre-doctor who Ooh, mm-hmm. before the beginning of the universe for some people 
Wow. Just fun to see that uh, again. And a lot of it did stick with me. Like, oh, I remember this scene. I remember this scene. But I'm, I'm glad I kind of refreshed my memory here. Not being what it used to be. Needless to say, nobody on Shameless is what you would call a good role model. Benefits, scams, drinking, drug dealing, theft, as well as the occasional beating are all regular parts of life for the characters. And that's just the kids. Everyone is indeed shameless. Originally shot on location, when the success of the series guaranteed its ongoing continuation, the decision was built to build a replica of the Chatsworth estate as a permanent set that could be used as need be. It features the exteriors of all the buildings, including the jockey, the corner shop, several streets, and alleys. The eighth season of Shameless is running this week with five episodes in a row. Frank is supposed to get married to Libby the Librarian, played by Pauline McLynn from Father Ted. But his ex-wife Monica shows up pregnant with a surrogate baby when Frank receives some bad news. Frank finally is persuaded to attend his own bachelor party, but refuses to dress up. So everyone else dresses up like Frank with long wigs and green army jackets. Quite a good sight gig. <laughs> but they misplace Frank in a cemetery and nobody can remember where he is. So the plot this week is, where's Frank? There are many allusions to close encounters of the third kind in the season opener, beginning with Frank building a model in his kitchen, it's the jockey pub, and seemingly going off in a spaceship at the end of the episode. Must keep in mind, Frank takes a lot of drugs. But I was also noticing the previews that he dresses up like the fourth doctor in the second episode. Mm. So I'm looking forward to seeing that. Meanwhile, a new couple are introduced to the series, the first black characters that I can recall. And Mum is keeping a secret from her husband. Letitia! Your father's here. Is that football? Go, you've got a groin strain. Match was cancelled. Why didn't you get changed? If your father finds out, I've sent you to private school. Oh, kill me! I can keep this up. Once you're in uni, it's all over. I might not even get into uni. Oh, you better bloody had. The amount I spent sending you to that place. I want the lot. GCSEs, A-levels and a first-class degree. Liam's asked if she can give him a hand with his homework again. She'll bring him in here. He doesn't like anyone knowing he's struggling. She then has to do an impromptu makeout session with him so he doesn't see his daughter's school uniform strewn about the kitchen. Shameless won the BAFTA for Best Drama Series in 2005. It lost the following year to Doctor Who, but has been nominated several times since. Paul Abbott is heavily involved in the U.S. remake. Showtime didn't just buy the rights from him and run like they did with Queer as Folk, which Russell T. Davis had nothing to do with. Yep, and that's why Russell T. won't work for Channel 4 ever again. He didn't like his deal. Hmm. Well, yeah, Channel 4 wants to keep Paul Abbott happy, and, and yeah, it's him and John Wells working on the American one, and apparently mm -hmm. he comes out every couple of weeks and sees how things are going and looks at the scripts. Uh, the first script is credited to him and John Wells, and you know, 95% of it really is Paul Abbott's lines and, and story. Just, you know, Chicago-fied. And the cast was pretty good in the American remake. I, you know, I didn't recognize anybody except William H. Macy. That's kind of the case with Shameless. Most of the kids in Shameless do end up on Waterloo Road, which is also shot in Manchester. But the actor playing Steve is just hoping for a repeat of uh, James McAvoy's <laughs> launch and stardom. Uh. Uh, I'm sure everybody would like to do that. I mean, that's sort of the, the great actor dream, you know, plucked from obscurity of television and get a big Hollywood career. 
Well, though, if he's with this show for two series and then they like him, you know, he was written out of the original. Are they going to start pumping out new scripts then? So it That's the thing. Is I, I suspect that think? a lot of the character changes in the series are due to actors leaving because mm-hmm. they seem to they'll keep on minor characters as long yeah, as they want like to. But there's Kelly a... and uh, uh, Maxine. Yeah. Eek. Yeah. Do you remember their last scene? Oh, I remember. Well, they make a cameo in the very yeah. first episode of season four, basically showing them they tried to buy a baby in Rome mm-hmm. and they got thrown in jail. They just have like a really quick shot of them and they came back to do this one mm-hmm. scene just to kind of write themselves out yep. of the series, which is kind of cool. And they could always come back, I suppose. I mean, they wouldn't be the only character who was an ex-con in the series. You know, yep. Frank's been in jail. The oldest McGuire boy who marries Karen got got out of jail after 10 years and Patty expected him to just rejoin the family business. He's like, nope. I've been in jail. I'm never going back. Mm-hmm. I'm going straight. And so he takes over the jockey. Um, he marries Karen, you know, who goes from giving blowjobs in the first episode to being much older. She has a baby. And or last year they discovered she was bipolar. Hmm. She kind of has a meltdown after the, uh, she has a sort of postpartum depression. So uh, her character has gone a long way. And then she was going to run off with Joe and he turned out to be abusive. And that was an excuse for them to write out Ian getting rid of Joe. Hmm. It's like a soap opera, but it's a funny soap opera. It is. Some people in Britain don't care for Shameless, calling it poverty porn. But Abbott and star David Threlfall defend the series as being honest and not patronizing. Threlfall is also one of the producers. He's directed a number of the episodes. He's one of my, he fascinates me, just the range he has. Is, did you see him as Victoria Wood's husband in Housewife 49? Yes. That was about as far away from Frank as you could possibly uh, He's played Prince get. Charles. Yeah. He's, he was the go-to guy for Prince Charles for a couple of years there. I remember him as Leslie Titmus in Paradise Postponed. That's probably the first time I saw him. short, very funny part in uh, Hot Fuzz playing a, one of the uh, amateur dramatics leading man playing Romeo, even though he's in his fifties, you know, <laughs> and not seventeen. He was he was playing Romeo in the town production of Romeo and Juliet. And well, he was in one of my favorite sitcoms, Nightingales, with Robert Lindsay, mm-hmm. and he was in that sitcom with John Sam. Yeah, I went all the way back. I saw him in um, Scum. Do you remember Scum? It was very interesting with Ray Rinston. Because they did it, they filmed it twice with almost the same cast, but one was for TV and the next year was for a feature film. It was bizarre that, and it was a year apart, the same, sort of the same script. I think it was, it might have been a play, so they cut different parts of it out for the two adaptations, but the first was the one I rented and David Threlfall was in that at a very, very young age, but very recently within the last few years he and ray winston were doing the commentary on this thing they'd done 30 years ago so that was kind of fun rent scum it's very good because he does a lot of the behind the scenes stuff sometimes he is just barely in an episode you just sort of see him flit in and out in one scene but well the really funny thing too of him playing a terrible terrible actor in hot fuzz was that he was in the original royal shakespeare production of nicholas nickleby playing smike and won an Olivier, and then they went to Broadway, and he won a Tony Award there. So here's this extremely awarded actor playing the town's worst Amdram enthusiast. I think audiences want to identify with characters, but not in the obvious ways like having a similar sociological background, like all the networks assume we are. Audiences want to see love, joy, faith, family, commitment, all the things that are important to them. 
It doesn't matter if the characters are gangsters like the Sopranos, shallow advertising men in 1960s New York, or the inhabitants of a council estate in Manchester. If we recognize things about ourselves in these characters who superficially don't resemble us at all, we care about them and their stories, and that's what makes good television. It's all in the writing and the acting. Make it good enough, keep it entertaining, and don't be afraid to change things up, and you have the makings of a great TV series. I think Shameless is all those things. I laughed out loud several times during the season opener, something that episodes sadly didn't make me do once. I'm sticking with Shameless. I'm glad Channel 4 has enough faith in it to produce 22 episodes in a single year, and I suppose one must grudgingly respect Showtime for wanting to expose Americans to the show, even in a remade form. Oh, I like it quite a bit. We'll get you back on the on the Shameless bandwagon here. Yeah, well, there's a lot of good talent in there, that may, and I would go on to watch them do other things. You know, Anna Marie Duff, um, after leaving the show, has mainly done theater and done, been... Very highly acclaimed for playing St. Joan, hmm. and Joan of Arc, among other things. So, and it was funny, too. She was already in her 30s and when she was playing Fiona, who was 19. Oh, She's just a very young-looking woman. <laughs> Lucky her. The Fiona they got for the American one was really good, too, because okay. it really is Fiona's story in the first episode. I mean, Frank, as I mm-hmm. said, is barely in it. And you want to buy into her story and her, and her relationship with Steve. And, you know, they did that really well. I mean... You know, I want to say it was sucked, but I can't. I mean, it was good. I'll always take the British one over the American one, of course. But not everyone can get their hands on it. So next week, the Little Britain team of Matt Lucas and David Williams are a pair of talented comedians. Chrissy and I have admired their work together and in solo projects for years. And next week in Show 68, we'll talk about their careers and how they got to where they are now. Yeah. Are they always going to be known as the Little Britain guys? I mean, they really need to come up with a better name for their double act. The Little Britain. Yeah, well, Lucas and Williams. Meanwhile, we'd like you to go to our website, which is www.britishtvpodcast.com. And there you can find links to headlines, show notes, what's on TV this week, and an archive of our previous 66 shows. And you can follow our Twitter feed, Brit TV Podcast, and hear our thoughts, what's going on. And if you have any comments or suggestions, you could send us an email at feedback at BritishTVPodcast.com. So you're just catching up on the Christmas shows. and I am. Here we are, the new season in January with things coming on. And I'll probably, uh, I really like Hustle. It's a fun little show. Um, I was doing a lot of artsy projects, so that's why I had the David Williams thing. That was a good one to have running and Background peek at noise, it from time yeah. to time while I was doing some hand basting on some toys I was making for some children of friends of mine and uh so there's you know there's different types of involvement you want with your tv so used to be really good about running hustle i mean sometimes they were showing it right in sync with the bbc and they promoted the heck out of it they did of course they cut a good 12 percent out of each episode well i can think of another network which uh, does the same thing with most tv shows uh, bbc america Mm -hmm. so there's nothing new there but at least they got it out over here and then they just kind of lost interest in the show i don't know why yeah, they had a um, series four I uh, got on I, from Netflix when it came out, and they had some really interesting behind-the-scenes bits of when they came to Los Angeles and Vegas to do the episodes. I do. I still miss Mark, and I still miss Jamie Murray. I, I like the new two pair, but it does seem like a different show than it did earlier. And They were wise to get Adrian Lester back, though. Mm-hmm. The theater critics of all the papers and... 
in uh, London had a nickname for him based on his, because he did mostly theater for the first 10 years of his career. They called him the Black Olivier because he could do anything. And he did a lot of musicals, even though he's not that strong of a singer, he could still put over a song. He played Antony in the um, real big production of Sweeney Todd that uh, Julian McKenzie, that she was in as well, a version of it that was recorded for radio. And he also played Bobby in a production of Company that Rebecca Front was in too, which I have horrible quality, but it was shown on TV. So I've got a 18th generation dub of that. So he was, and he um, ended up in Primary Colors in a that was playing an American. Of, yeah. I mean, the fact they could not find an actor in all the United States to play this part, and they reached over to England and got Adrian Lester for that. He really didn't want to do television because he liked, he was at the point where he was still young and wanted to take as many different roles as he could and play. But then he realized as a con artist, he would be playing different types of characters in different episodes. And it's true. He's played a Nigerian prince most suitably doing a scam. He's played a hip-hop producer from L.A. And well, I think he's also realized that the rejuvenating yeah. power the TV has for your career and that you're, you know you shoot for two or three months, mm-hmm. now you're a TV guy. You can get the theater parts you want because right. now you're a name that puts bums on seats and you will get jobs. Well, he'd already picked up, I think, at least two Olivier's by the time he did this. So he was... But you know, out of sight, yeah, out of mind, as far right. as the theater guys, they wanted, you know, a scene in TV's hustle. Did you see it? Uh, David Tennant and Catherine Tate are going to do Much Ado About Nothing on the West End. Oh, no, I did not. They announced that last week. Very and cool. the theater immediately, of course, was swamped with people wanting tickets to see that. Mm-hmm. Apparently, they just love hanging out together. Well, why not? They did seem very big sister, younger brother kind of chemistry during their season of Doctor Who. So we'll see what they're doing Who's on stage. Older? Hmm? Who's older, Catherine Tate or David Tennant? I think she's just a tiny bit older, but they're probably pretty close. Yeah. Yeah, they uh, did that emergency fill-in for Jonathan Ross for his radio show uh, a couple Christmases ago, and mm-hmm. they apparently just are always looking for things to do together. Very cool. Yeah. Yeah, she interviewed him as well for a Chain Reaction right. series, which was fun. And then he interviewed Richard Wilson. Maybe they should be one of those acting couples that just sort of do things together because they like bouncing off each other. Yeah. And there's plenty of parts where there's a guy and a woman just doing that kind of thing. And I think that strikes their kind of comic sensibility. Yeah, I was read something kind of fun that right before being announced as the Doctor, Matt Smith did a play with Lindsay Duncan that we like so much playing his mother called That Face. It was done originally in a very short run the playwright was only 21 years old she'd won a contest and then later it went on the in the west end for a longer run with almost the same cast including Lindsay and matt who had done it a year earlier but i read their um it's been commissioned to be a film so with luck they will get to be in the film version which should be fun matt's kind of busy though well that's true but he's got a couple months every year they could do it yeah, you have to do it during that window. I was looking up Andrew Buchan, and he and Matt Smith were in Party Animals together. Oh, okay. And Andrew Buchan was scary. asked him, you know, what kind of actors excite you? And he goes, oh, Matt Smith is, you know, great. Right. Well, she, Lindsay Duncan said, when you've ever said her name, she just glowed and said, I can't possibly say enough good things about him. He's so good and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Hopefully he'll stick around with Doctor Who for a while. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. Looks like we beat the snow. Hooray! We'll see you all next week. Bye-bye. I finished my water glass. Heading out. Bye-bye. <laughs>